Welcome to another episode of the Dan Norton Show. Today, as you've probably noticed, I'm in a new location. I am here in Vikingland, one of the Scandinavian countries, if you didn't know where the Vikings were from. And I am here joined with, uh, joined by Klaus Nordby. Would you like to say hello? Hello, hello. This is Klaus Nordby speaking. And I am also here with Espen Hammer. Hello. All right, so there are my two guests. I'm very pleased to, this is my first trip to Viking lands and uh, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to meet with each of them. And they uh, kindly agreed to do an interview for my channel. So here we are and let's start by saying, since my channel is Ayn Rand themes, uh, let's start with uh, a little about Ayn Rand and how they connect. And both of them, uh, they're, they're off camera. They've chosen to be off camera. So you're just going to be seeing me. But you should be able to hear them okay. We did a little sound check before. All right, so uh, let's start with Klaus. When did you discover Ayn Rand or how did you discover Ayn Rand? Oh, that's more than 40 years ago, uh, 1981. Um, Basically, I read in various places something about Ayn Rand that made her seem interesting. Um, these, these, uh, I read them, read about her actually in uh, magazines devoted to comic books. But uh, she sounded interesting, so I asked my mother, who was a librarian, "Could you get me something by this Ayn Rand?" Um, one fine day, she came home with the fountain of. Um, that completely blew my mind, like no book ever had blown my mind. And well, that started my journey to reading Iran and becoming an objectivist and uh, arranging conferences and giving some lectures and publishing Iran. I'm twice published a fountain of in Norwegian editions, and once I published the anthem. Uh, I worked for years trying to get Atlas Shrugged published in Norway, but never managed to make that happen. Um, so, and then I attended a number of conferences, both in the US and the Europe. I have arranged conferences here in Europe. And, uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook, where I have met a lot of splendid objectivist friends and Ayn Rand fans, and uh, it is a big part of my life. All right, thank you for that introduction. I've seen your name around for, for many years in the objectosphere. I think on uh, Harry Binswanger's list, I, I've seen mm -hmm. you, but I don't think I had ever uh, seen you at a conference. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting to finally meet you. Pleased to have that chance. And, and I, I guess I most associate your name with Harry Binswanger's book because I believe you helped him in some well, way with the art. Well, in some way, you could say that. Yeah, I'd like to hear about it. that. Well, uh, Harry and I have been friends for many years. We met in the late 80s. Um, and for years, I knew about him working. Uh, he, he actually started his to work on this book in 19... 98 and then I heard about it from him for years and years and years and eventually around 2012 so we're talking about 14 years 
Harry then uh, thought he had the book finished. And I largely bullied him into letting me uh, design it and typeset it uh, for him and work on the graphics, the illustrations. And, uh, well, I got to bully Harry Binswanger for two years. Uh, Did you enjoy that? Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> uh, I can only hope Harry enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, but... Uh, so we worked on his book. So the manuscript, which we started with, uh, I read through it line for line. I gave Harry lots of feedback, and you know we discussed a lot of points intellectually uh, in the manuscript. I mean, it's Harry's book. I was just his friend giving you know feedback on his manuscript. But uh, I mean, I had studied objectivism for nearly forty years by that time, so I knew a couple of things which turn out to be useful. Uh, if I have a special field in philosophy, it would be a perception. So especially the chapter on perception in his book, I believe I contributed quite a lot of constructive feedback uh, on which Harry uh, implemented. So, and of course, and then I handled all the graphics, the technical production, because I'm a graphics guy, so. So, but what I'm most proud of there, I mean, I can do graphics in my sleep, but this was heavy duty, philosophical reading and thinking and feedback. And uh, so for two years, Harry, we used Skype. I mean, so we did text and voice work on Skype. Uh, he was in New York and I was here in Viking land. And so every week we had many work sessions where we went through revision upon revision and eventually in February of 2014 uh, we published the book. All right thanks for that intro. I didn't know you did more than the artwork I was aware of that part but it's interesting to hear that you also give feedback on the content. So. Oh yeah a great uh, deal of feedback on the manuscript. Yes. All right uh, now Espen so you also uh, have been introduced to Ayn Rand. I, I guess it wasn't 40 years ago. It was uh, perhaps some, sometime more recent. Would you like to tell us about uh, when you heard about subjectivism or Ayn Rand and how? Sure. Um, I uh, was introduced to, I would say, both philosophy uh, in general and then uh, objectivism specifically. As around 10 years ago, around the 2013, um, and uh, but it was through politics uh, when I got engaged in a capitalist party at the time. But many of the members in that party they were objectivists. So it was really I got into that environment there, and then through those people I discovered Ayn Rand and objectivism. I'd never heard about her before, uh, but then it was like a more like a gradual process. I think that through over time that I uh, gradually transitioned from politics uh, into uh, objectivism uh, I uh, yeah I discovered that really at least in my view politics is a dead end uh, if you want to uh, you know go for real change you don't achieve anything through uh, through politics plus uh, I also find uh, objectivism 
much more rewarding than doing political work. So eventually I completely uh, quit politics for good. Uh, I've not regretted it, that decision. Uh, but now I'm, I mean, I have a regular job. So this, my objective studies is like more like a, a hobby for me. Uh, but I have, uh, you know, some general plans for, you know, for what I want to read and study, but I expect this to take many, many years, at least as many years as Klaus has been studying for objectivism. So, so I'm excited for the road ahead. Mm -hmm. And so uh, both of you are Norwegians. I'm, I'm guessing that maybe Vigard Martinsen is one of the people who might have been affiliated with the, the political group that you had mentioned? He was affiliated with that group. He was the leader of that party. Uh, and uh, he has uh, had also written several books about politics uh, and philosophy. He, he has been into the, from what I know, he had been, he discovered um, what we in Norwegian refer to as uh, liberalism, like classical liberalism. Uh, which was back in the early 70s, I think. Uh, but then he, he got into politics, uh, I think, in the, uh, in the late 80s. He was a member of the, um, uh, of the Norwegian Progress Party, which is in fact not a, what Americans know as progressives, but like, more like a national conservative party, but back then it was more capitalist oriented. Um, uh, but then he he got into I don't know what exactly what point he got into objectivism, but early eighties. It was early eighties, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, there was a situation in the Progress Party that arose in nineteen ninety four. So then him and other objectivists and people who were pro-capitalists, they were basically kicked out of the party uh, and then they formed their own group, which lasted for a few years. And then finally they got into this same party that I got into in around 2013. Uh, it's abbreviated DLF. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so he was the leader of that party, DLF from 2001, I believe, until it's, uh, it was dissolved uh, in, uh, or it was, yeah, they closed it down in, in uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. And you, you say he's also an author, he's written some books? He has written... Uh, in Norwegian? In Norwegian, yes, a range of uh, different types of articles. There are many that I haven't read, uh, essays, uh, some of them have made it into book form, uh, so there are basically uh, collections of essays and articles. May I add that his first book uh, was a, a brief history of philosophy, which I edited and designed, and that was 1992, I believe. 91, right. 92. I think it was in 91. 91, okay. Yes, mm -hmm. it was called, translated to English, called uh, Philosophy and Introduction. Yeah. Um, uh, but after that, he came with several collections of articles and essays uh, about philosophy and politics uh, from an objectivist perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, 
he also has written uh, many many uh, news commentaries like great comments on uh, on things that are in news uh, and he both in Norway uh, and also internationally uh, so but from again from an objectivist perspective mm -hmm. uh, so I read a lot of his uh, writings uh, in Norwegian uh, and uh, after having just read him I started reading Ayn Rand uh, in 2016 I read my first Ayn Rand book which was We the Living uh, and then I continued on to reading Anthem and then The Fountainhead and now I am uh, I am about halfway through Atlas Shrugged so where while Klaus has several decades of experience with studying objectivism and just starting my my studies in uh, objectivism Alright, well that's exciting that you're halfway through Atlas Shrugged you still yeah. have the last half to get through yeah. um, Okay, well thank you for that intro and since we're in Viking lands, I'm interested to talk to you about the common perception that I hear in, in the United States that Scandinavia is an example of the success of socialism. I have done many debates with socialists. Sometimes it comes up in my debates, which many of my audience members may have seen. Sometimes my debate opponent will say, well, look at Scandinavia and how great they've been with their socialist-oriented uh, political systems. So as people who are living in Scandinavia, I'm curious to hear what you think about that sort of uh, characterization of Scandinavia. We are not socialistic countries. Absolutely not. We are... Uh, mixed economy, welfare states, just like America, Canada, England, etc. The mixes here are different from the way they are, for instance, in America. Uh, some things are better here, some things are worse here. Um, but my standard for good and bad is, of course, uh, in, in effect, the objectivist ethics uh, and the objectivist uh, politics, namely what 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 uh, what benefits the individual and in his uh, own life and uh, it is th there's no question that life in Scandinavia is on the world basis it th these are good countries and if you allow the idea that we are socialistic well then you kind of get end up with hey socialism works um, which is an idea which objectivists uh, should be careful about promoting uh, we are uh, better than americans in some ways worse in other ways uh, regarding uh, property regulations rules, uh, taxes, corporate taxes, for instance, in Norway are lower than they are in America. Uh, property taxes in Sweden and Norway are much lower than they typically are in America. Uh, income taxes here may be higher often than they are in America. So they are 
things are good and bad in these all these uh, welfare state uh, economies uh, with different uh, mixes. Um, it would be kind of absurd to say America is a capitalist country uh, in the objectivist sense. It is a horribly, horribly mixed mess. And we are also the same. We are a horribly mixed mess, but the mixes are a bit different, quite simply. I've heard Niran Brook, I believe, say that uh, the United States is more regulated in some ways than the Scandinavian countries. And that accounts for, despite the fact that there might be greater taxation, at least in some aspects of uh, Scandinavian economy, because they are less regulated, they're able to compensate for the greater taxation and by having uh, greater productivity. And that's one of the ways that's kept them afloat as well as they have been. Yeah, but also, I mean, we, we, there is private property all over here. You know, the, the property is respected. Uh, someone breaks into my house, the police will come and get him. Uh, I think the situation in North Korea is, would be somewhat uh, different, I'm uh, guessing. So there is protection of private property. Yes, private property is also violated in a thousand ways with rules and regulations which should not exist. Same as in America. Uh, in America, you have horrible, horrible, horrible antitrust regulations. In Norway and Sweden, there is something in that direction, but it's certainly, they, we don't have a million draconian laws that prevents businessmen from, no matter what a businessman does in America, the government wants to prosecute him. Uh, it's possible due to the horrible mess of those laws. And that doesn't, to my knowledge, exist in Norway and Sweden, for example. Um, yes. One could also compare the different approaches uh, that uh, the United States took to the COVID restrictions versus the mm -hmm. uh, restrictions we had here in Vikingland. Yeah. Um, my impression is that on a relative scale, the Scandinavian countries, particularly, particularly Sweden, but also Norway was quite, uh, was quite uh, lax compared to many other countries in the world, uh, including the United States. Uh, and at least I can speak for Norway's part, uh, we mostly got rid of all COVID restrictions uh, more than a year ago. It was around, I think it was in February 22. Um, so, yeah, it, I think Scandinavian uh, governments handled it. Uh, I'm not saying they handled it. Good, but again, on a relative scale to other countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And I would especially stress the way Sweden handled things. Uh, that was much better. By better, I mean freer, less restrictions. They violated people's lives much, much less in Sweden than in any other country, including Norway. I think so. in Norway were much worse than in Sweden. And there are all kinds of dooms, uh, you know, prophets of doom talking about, oh, people in Sweden, they're just going to kill the whole country. Well, that didn't happen at all. Uh, I often visit Sweden. I shop there. And I saw, you know, I saw a lot of Sweden, though, though I'm Norwegian. 
and I hardly ever saw someone in public wearing a stupid mask, for example. Uh, so, so the Swedes were they were they they respected individual freedom uh, very well, and they didn't have any disastrous consequences at all. Uh, so the rest of the world they created all these horrible dictatorial uh, rules everywhere, which. Uh, did really nothing regarding COVID, but violated people's lives in so many ways, killing off billions and billions of dollars in productivity and, and just simply squashing human, normal human life. Whereas the Swedes, they let, I mean, over, the Swedes had a laissez-faire policy, and that worked out very well for them. All right. That's th this re reminds me of another aspect of what a free society includes, which I think is a reasonable immigration policy. So that's something I'm interested in. I know in, in the United States, it's quite difficult to Im immigrate into the country. I think some people, it can take them years and years to, to, to get all the paperwork sorted out so they can move in. And I'm wondering how Scandinavia compares on, on that metric. Is it do you know if it's much, is, is it a very easy thing to move somebody into the country uh, or is it also extremely difficult? Um, any info or insights on that? Um, I would say it is, uh, my impression is that it is easier uh, in Sweden. Um, in Norway, however, you would most likely run into some difficulties. Um, I happen to have a wife from another country outside of Europe. Uh, and uh, we've had issues and difficulties with the Norwegian immigration authorities for many years. Um, of course, the other people might be in different situations that might make their migration to Norway easier. Uh, but in our case, at least, we've, it has been difficult for us. Uh, so, move, but, but this has been a deliberate uh, policy on the Norwegian government part that they wish to have a restrict, uh, restrictive immigration policy um, for, yeah, we don't need to get into the reasons for that, but at least that's the lot, that's the, uh, what they have chosen to do. Uh, and that's also in large part supported by the uh, people in Norway. Okay. I'm curious if, if you are, are okay with saying like how, how long did it take for your process of immigration with your wife to, to become successful or has it become successful? Um, did it like one year or um, longer than that? Well, we could say that she moved to Norway uh, more than 10 years ago and uh, we haven't finalized the process yet. That's a long time. Over, so it's been over a decade and you still haven't got all the paperwork squared away. Yeah, all the permissions. That's that seems like a very unfree, and I don't know that it's better in the United States. Maybe some people have to endure. I don't know if they have to endure that level. Um, well, I mean, I think it's understandable that a lot of people try to cross illegally into some country, maybe from a, a very uh, relative hell like Cuba. You know, people have tried to swim through shark-infested waters. I've heard stories of that, or cross through the the desert from Mexico into the United States and risk their lives. Um, because if you try to do it legally and you have to run into years and years, maybe over a decade, 
and it still doesn't work, you can understand why people would try to immigrate illegally. And maybe that's all this, the problem was, was, is with the laws, not with the immigrants. So we often call them illegal immigrants, which uh, might have a bad connotation to some people, but maybe the problem is, is not the immigrants, it's the laws. Uh, you had something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, but I would like to just underscore that uh, we could have been in an, uh, it could be that our particular situation was maybe, uh, hasn't played in our favor, uh, given that I have been, uh, we've both, both been students and, and so on, so maybe it would have been easier if both of us coming into the relationship and she moving to Norway, we, would, we were in full-time jobs and so on. Because there are restrictions, uh, there are certain requirements you need to fulfill. So I assume others uh, might have an easier situation. Also, if uh, it would have been easier if she was from, say, another country in Europe. Uh, so, so there are many factors in play here uh, that uh, you know need to add to the context. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I'm not saying that every other person trying to migrate to Norway would have uh, a difficult, as difficult a time as, as me, as my wife has experienced. Right. Okay. So, well, that's, yeah, hopefully it's not that difficult for everyone. But I think even in, um, even if you have some unusual circumstances, um, I tend to think, you know, if someone is, is not initiating force, against others, if they don't pose any threats, um, you know, why not let them in? Uh, sh should it be, you know, maybe it shouldn't take 10 years, but should it even take one year? Uh, um, I tend to think uh, that it should be much, much easier uh, than it is. I, I think uh, Harry Benswinger, who was mentioned earlier in this, in this uh, video, has said that immigrating to another country should be as easy as crossing a state border within the United States, where all there is is a sign that says welcome to Texas, if you're crossing into the Texas, for instance. Um, but to put any further kind of barrier is to violate the rights of the, the citizens to, uh, to freedom of movements. Um, now, I, I think there is some disagreements uh, within, among objectivists about exactly how uh, immigration should work at the border. Should there be some minimal level of screening or should it be completely open? Like uh, if all you have is a, is a welcome sign uh, to, to the new country, there's some disagreement about that. But I think in general, um, objectivists that I've heard discuss this issue think it should be much, much, much easier. Did you have anything you wanted to add on the immigration topic? Uh, America, the melting pot, is dead. America used to be a country where anybody could easily emigrate to without any lawyers or waiting or whatever. I had an uncle who in the late 1940s, he was a carpenter in Norway. Norway was a hard place to be in the late 1940s after the war. He emigrated to America. He had no problems. He got some farmer, friend, relative to guarantee for him for a year or whatever it was. 
and he just had to have a notice, uh, the only paper, to the best of my knowledge, he needed to get a slip from the sheriff in his local uh, place in Norway, saying that this is a good guy, he has never done anything wrong, and he just moved to America just like that. And he eventually did good, became a general contractor, bought properties, made decent money, got a family in America. This is completely impossible now. Uh, completely impossible. That, 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 that doesn't exist in America, and it doesn't exist in Norway or Sweden uh, either. The world has become generally xenophobic. It's a horrible violation of people's right to live on Earth. Human beings have a right to live on Earth, anywhere on Earth, in my uh, philosophy. And uh, America used to be like that. In other words, my uncle, he was not a known criminal. Someone in America offered him, you know, hey, you can work on my farm. He did it, got established, and had a good life in America. Impossible now, impossible now. Even people who are well-educated, with lots of skills, uh, at somewhere it's it's either it's doable through hell or it's not doable at all. So the story Espen talked about Norway is also too much true about America, unfortunately. Definitely seems to be a big departure from the spirit of the 19th century, and the or for that matter, you know, the 20th century. My uncle went yeah. there in the late 1940s, no problem. So in only two generations, America has gone down the drain when it comes to simply freedom of immigration. Right, and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of arguments about this, which I encourage people watching this to check out. Like Harry Benzwanger has some talks on YouTube. Some, I think the Ayn Rand Institute has put out some good discussions on this topic. So I encourage people to check out those resources as well. So uh, that's uh, let's let's circle back to Ayn Rand. We talked. We started with Ayn Rand and how you got to uh, know her works, and then we shifted to Viking Land and its politics. Let's now come back to Ayn Rand's a bit. I heard that uh, you might have some Ayn Rand. Do you have any Ayn Rand memorabilia? Because you were around during that era, or at least I don't know, maybe overlap some with it. Um, any collector's items or anything you might have come across? Yes, I mean, Ayn Rand died shortly after I first read her, but in 1987, I was able to buy at the very first Ayn Rand Institute auction in New York City, a, a very special book which she owned and which she had annotated in her handwriting. It was Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, which she read in 1946. And she uh, wrote a lot of very colorful commentary in the margins. Uh, the more philosophical, meaty things have been published uh, in the book called Iron Rand's Marginalia, edited by Robert Mayhew. But he dropped a lot of the more colorful uh, utterances. Uh, when Iron Rand read a book and she found things she did not agree with, she could be very expressive. Yes. about uh, what she thought of this writer and the ideas he was espousing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen a few examples of that, I think, in connection with C.S. Lewis. Um, but I wasn't aware of the, the Hayek uh, 
examples. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, and the reason I wanted that book was because Hayek is huge. I mean, culturally, historically, uh, Ayn Rand is huge. And there were, in this one book, you had these two, well, let's call them both giants. Again, I'm no fan of Hayek, but he, he mattered in the world. Eventually, he got the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, so to see how Ayn Rand, at a fairly early age, so in other words, this was in '46 when she was then, uh, well, she was, uh, in effect, 40 years old, approximately, right? Isn't that right? My math is... In 46? She, would 46. Have she was born 41. in 45. Yeah, she was 41, yeah, right. Um, so she was, she had just finished The Fountain pretty much when she read uh, this. So this was when she was starting work on Atlas Shrugged. Uh, in one of her letters, she called uh, Hayek for pure poison. Mm. Uh, she thought he had an altruist, collectivist type of defense for freedom. Uh, he was not the defender at all of laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, he was more like a non-religious conservative who had a lot of philosophical ideas in his perspectives, which she took great exception to. Okay, yeah, I knew he, he did a lot of work in economics that I think I've heard objectivists say is quite good, but when it comes to philosophy or ethics, that's where his, uh, he really departs from, yeah. from Rand. Okay, and let's see. Um, I'm interested to hear about any, uh, so that was the old, older days, what about the current days? Are you working on any projects today related yeah, to this? Uh, I am co-writing a book with my friend Vegard Ottevik, also a Norwegian, about uh, the philosophy of objectivism. It's an introductory text, it's not like Peikoff's works uh, or other more heavy academic things. But it's also a bit more advanced than the simpler books uh, by uh, Bernstein, who has, uh, Andrew Bernstein has written several introductory things to objectivism and Ayn Rand. So it's, it, uh, it's a book which describes the, well, the, the full sum of objectivism um, for the intelligent layman. It's, it's a book for the proverbial intelligent layman. It does not presume any knowledge of philosophy or Ayn Rand objectivism. Um, and it simply seeks to objectively present the philosophy of objectivism in, a, in an accessible form, more accessible than other books and a bit more sophisticated than the simpler books. So it covers, does it cover all the branches of philosophy like yeah. metaphysics, yeah. epistemology, yeah. ethics, politics, aesthetics? Yeah, it does. And it also has a biographical chapter. It has a chapter about some cultural things uh, in addition to the main branches of philosophy. Um, it has, at the back of the book, we have a section we call errata, which I believe is a rather unique thing, which has never been done before. We basically go through a dozen of all those popular misconceptions, to put it kindly, all the distortions, uh, the nasty things said about Ayn Rand and objectivism, you know, things like, oh, it's just warmed over Nietzschean stuff, 
um, and there are horrible things out there in the internet land about Ayn Rand admired a mass murderer, Ayn Rand was a drug user, these absolutely vicious, nasty, dishonest things that are floating out there in the world, which people will now unfortunately quickly discover if they just Google a little bit for Ayn Rand and objectivism. So we, we put one topic per page. We quickly go through and refute a dozen of these uh, horrible, uh, sometimes disgusting uh, things about Ayn Rand and objectivism, which, which they are easy to refute. So we can tear them apart in just one page per, yeah, per item of vicious nonsense. Um, so that is one thing about our book, which will be unique and distinct. And advanced, some advanced readers really appreciate that and think it's a good, good resource to, to gather these uh, brief uh, refutations uh, in one page, in one place. Yeah, I certainly do come across many straw men uh, or smear type arguments of Ayn Rand. So. Yeah, these are basically all variations of smears against Ayn Rand, both her as a person and, and the philosophy as, uh, as a topic. Okay. Uh, so as far as the objectivist community in, in uh, Viking land, I'm interested to hear a little about that. I guess you came into it in very different times. And maybe back in the uh, 80s, before the internet really was a thing, it was much different. Um, so Espen, I, I'm curious to hear, like, what, what is your sense? Was there already, did you find, when you first discovered Ayn Rand, was there already an objectivist community in place that you could just join? Or have you, have you since found an objectivist community? Are there other objectivists, other than Klaus, obviously, in Viking land that you've uh, gotten in touch with? Uh, absolutely, yes. Like I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, in Vegard, you did mention him. Yes, but there were several other uh, people there, including also Vegard Ottervik, which Klaus is uh, co-working his book with now. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, uh, there is the um, there was that political party that I mentioned that I first got involved with around twenty thirteen, mm -hmm. um, uh, and then there is the FSO, the Norwegian Association for the Study of Objectivism. Uh, they have. Uh, regular uh, regular member meetings and they have social events um, and uh, the association recently celebrated its 50th uh, anniversary in last fall uh, it was founded in 1972 so it's been wow. around for a while uh, although I don't know how big they were back or well known they were back in the back in the day maybe Klaus could add some comments to that. Yes, I first uh, met these, the, it was a small study group initially starting at University of Oslo, as you said, in 1972. Uh, so in 82, I met these people because they actually ran a small ad in a businessman's magazine where it says, who is Ayn Rand in Norwegian? Are you interested in discussing her? Or, then contact us. This was in 82, there were no email, internet or whatever. I had to write a letter to this postal box. And after a week or two, I got a letter back informing me or informing me that we're starting to run some tape lectures in March. 
Uh, and that was, I so I showed up for those, it was in the private home, and there were about a dozen people there. And they were then starting to run then the Peacock's uh, tape course from 1976 called The Philosophy of Objectivism. Um, there's a little, uh, a little thing I could add there, which is, so I show up there on March the 8th, 1982, private home. I've never met these people before, uh, so I, you know, I enter the apartment and I see those people sitting around this room and they're, they're extremely uh, unwelcoming. They're very, they don't hardly react. You know, I tried to nod to a few of them and I shake my hand with a couple of them. And there were oh, really no reactions. They were extremely, I wouldn't say hostile, but they were extremely remote, removed. They couldn't give a damn that there was a new guy here. And I thought I was a little bit strange. So I sit down in a chair and I think, well, these are all individualists, you know. I never met any real individualists before. Maybe that's how these individualists are. Then I hear someone whisper or say to another, yes, she died on Saturday. They had just heard five minutes before that Ayn Rand had passed away. So they were all in shock completely, you know, numb, completely, all of them overwhelmed by hearing Ayn Rand had passed away two days ago. And they had just heard this before I entered the room. So no wonder they were very uh, cold and remote and unwelcoming to a stranger because they were all, they were all in a kind of a state of uh, shock. And, so that was my introduction to the objectivist movement in Norway, which turned out eventually to be a bit more normal people. Uh, they were not uh, dead robots like they seemed on my first encounter. They were a bit more no normal people. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That was March March 6th. She died on March the 6th, and this was March the 8th, two days okay. after. Yeah. And they had just heard this. Someone had phoned one of them from the U.S., and then this person was then telling everyone again five minutes before I came into the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's an unusual place, yeah. <laughs> a way to be introduced to an objective yes, community. Yeah, so my timing uh, was very well. Uh, can only go up from there. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> could say that. Uh, so okay, and, and then I started to become involved with this little organization, and eventually I published, republished The Fountainhead, and a couple of years later I published Anthem, and I got, so, with a handful of these other people, we organized some conferences in both Oslo and Copenhagen, and eventually also in Amsterdam. So I was very closely involved with this student group for many years in uh, Oslo. So it's thanks to you that probably many people have read Ayn Rand in Norwegian. Yes, that is actually true. Um, I, I personally have friends now who told me, you know, when I first met them years and years ago, that they discovered the edition of Anthem, which I and some others, we have published in Norwegian and, and also the Fountainhead. So yes, there are people walking around in Norway who discovered Ayn Rand through my efforts, and I'm very 
pleased about that. And some of these people are friends of mine now. Well, thank you for that. Sure. Did you happen to first read Ayn Rand in English or Norwegian? Uh, it was in, uh, in English, I believe. There is no Norwegian translation of We the Living. So okay, so you started with We the Living. I started with We the Living in uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, so far, uh, I don't have any plans on reading her in Norwegian, really. I prefer the original language, you know, it's her pen. It's right. how she formulated it, you know, instead of having to go through the filter of a translator. Although I'm, there are many uh, skilled translators out there, there's, I still want to go to the source, the original source, you know. Right. And she's such a great writer. You, you, uh, you get the beauty of her language when you... Yes, exactly. English. And I don't find English to be a challenge to me at all. Uh, there are occasionally some words I look up when reading. Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, but by and large, I uh, I don't find English to be any challenge to me. So I, I, I go with English, the original language. Okay, great. Well, I think we, we covered some good ground here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Maybe since we're in Vikingland, we could close off with, you could say in Norwegian or some other uh, uh, Viking language, I don't know, be selfish or... <laughs> Maybe maybe uh, some objectivist related. I, I would be interested to hear just what it sounds like. Do they okay. use egoist or, or something like that for yeah, the word selfish? Egoist is, you know, uh, selvisk and egoist, we use that. But I, I, I like to add some. Okay. In the late 80s, I had a radio show on Norwegian radio in the mornings. Um, my column, there was a, I, I gave a seven-minute little speech on some cultural philosophical topic. And I cl closed off each each little mini lecture with the phrase "tank cell novel." I hope you can hear that it rhymes and it, it means uh, it, the rhyme doesn't translate, but it means "think for yourself." So so think for yourself then is approximately how it amounts to. So "tank cell novel." Tank cell novel. Well, <laughs> take no, it from here, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any uh, cl closing Norwegian words you want to throw it? Throw no, out to I the, don't uh... think I have anything right off the bat. So, okay. okay, for another time. For another time. All right, maybe you can have a part two of this. All right, well, thanks again. Thank and you. we'll close off with what was it that you just said? Tinksel <laughs> <laughs>